0: Thank you all for coming and welcome to the Institute Institute of Advanced Studies and welcome back to those of you who have attended our previous seminars or or previous events here. My name is Peter Leary and I'm a junior research fellow here. Um, I'm a historian, my own research um, interests are international borders, including but not only the the partition of Ireland. My colleague Alison Deutsch and I, who's an art historian, historian and sitting just here are organising this uh, vulnerability seminar series. Vulnerability and lies are our two research themes here at the IAS this year, and there are lots of events and discussions taking place which are exploring both. As part of this series, over the course of this academic ter- term and next, we will be hearing from a wide range of speakers who will be approaching vulnerability from diverse angles and disciplinary perspectives. This is our third Um, in the series of seminars. We heard previously from Professor Stephen Connor from the University of Cambridge who spoke about vulnerability in the context of knowledge, stupidity and shame. And last week, I think one or two of you were here, we um, heard from Professor Jonathan Herring from Oxford talking about vulnerability and the law. And this evening we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Kate Smith who is here with us but before I introduce her and hand over to her I want to give you a quick plug for our next event. Next Wednesday we're going to be back here in Common Ground at 5 p.m. for uh, Keith B. Wagner who's Assistant Professor of Global Media and Culture in the Centre for Multidisciplinary and Intercultural Inquiry here at UCL and he's going to be talking about living with uncertainty, precarity, Vulnerability and service industry workers on screen. Before that, we will hear from this evening from Dr. Kate Smith from the University of Huddersfield. Dr. Smith is a research fellow on asylum and immigration, children, family, and well-being in the Centre for Applied Childhood, Childhood, Youth, and Family Research. She also works as a practitioner manager at Women's Centre Calderdale and Kirklees, which I think she's going to say a little bit more about developing collaborative and participatory services and projects with women seeking asylum, refugees, and new migrants. Her research centers broadly on these areas of migration, asylum, and refugee studies, including contesting the inequities and inequalities and injustices that coincide with asylum and immigration policies and practices. Her talk tonight is entitled, Narratives of Vulnerability Rethinking stories about the figure of the refugee in Europe. And I hope you'll all uh, join me in welcoming her to the IAS and UCL. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Peter, um, and thanks also to Alison, really, for hosting and for inviting me here. It, it really is a privilege to, to be here at UCL and to have come down from the north where it was snowing to what is still quite a cold space down in London, a bit of a shock. Um, as Peter has said, um, yes, I'm a research fellow in, in the area of asylum and migration, and um, come here really today to to talk about narratives of vulnerability uh, and to rethink some of the ideas that are emerging around the figure of the refugee as it relates to vulnerability. So some of my work is based on, uh, or some of this thinking has been based on my work both within the Women's Centre where I deliver services and manage services for women seeking asylum for the last Uh, 18 years, um, and also my work as a research fellow, Um, again, very interested in participatory approaches with those who are seeking asylum, um, who live with us in amongst our communities as our neighbors and our friends, my colleagues, um, and others. I I wanted to also just acknowledge um, Louise Waite. She's a professor uh, at the University of Huddersfield, uh, sorry, at the University of Leeds, and some of the thinking that I'm bringing here today comes from our shared talks together, but again, Part of me bringing this talk today was to extend the talk um, to this group of people. So I'm hoping to actually take ideas with me uh, um, after I leave. Um, So in terms of what I aim to talk about today, um, I'd like to start with a kind of narrative understanding of vulnerability. And so I'll talk a little bit about the relationship between stories and narratives. Um, and also to highlight the way in which asylum has moved from spontaneous asylum-seeking routes into um, Europe and the UK to much more controlled routes. Um, And this has been facilitated by the role of hostile states, which I would like to outline, um, which have characterised people who deserve protection and, of course, those who do not. Um, I'm going to drill down and look very specifically at the UK Syrian Resettlement Person Programme, um, which I think exemplifies the latest... Hierarchy of rights rights and entitlements in relation to refugees, um, but also look at some of the asylum policies that exist that are conditions where vulnerabilities are generated and produced. Um, I'm going to present very briefly as well on a small project that I conducted looking at asylum support for children and young people living in Kirklees. Um, and then offer some concluding thoughts about the consequences really of viewing asylum uh, through narratives of vulnerability. Um, And I've got a number of questions that I wanted to explore and hopefully have a bit of a dialogue with you about. So taking a narrative approach, I start from the assumption that telling stories is something we do to construct a sense of our lives for ourselves and for others. And we tell stories to explain our actions and decisions to mitigate the ways in which people understand us um, and to construct our identities. As Ken Plummer states, different moments have highlighted different stories and as societies change, so stories change. So while stories can give some insights into the lives of people, they're not straightforward descriptions of events um, or experiences. So the articulation of stories is um, accomplished in relation to narratives, which are socio-political, culturally, contextual, uh, historically bound in multiple ways. So, if narratives do not um, reflect simply the world in which we live, I would suggest they serve as powerful forms of social control, sanctioning, conditioning and enabling certain stories, while also censoring, marginalising and rendering others without credibility. So, narratives also produce order to the stories that we tell and hear, so our lives may be constrained or enabled by our own stories and also the storytelling of others about our lives. As patterns of migration shift over time, so change the stories we can tell. So what do we know about migration, what do we know about asylum stories, and where are the narratives to those stories? This is a copy of my passport. Um, Even though the sense of who I am might extend beyond citizenship and nation borders, this document has meaning. And it serves as evidence of my British citizenship, but also of my um, citizenship of the European Union. And you might be aware that every year, the Henley and Partners Visa Restriction Index ranks countries across the globe according to travel freedom or freedom of movement that their citizens enjoy. And in 2017, British citizens had visa-free or visa-on-arrival access to 173 countries um, and territories. Countries at the top of the list include Germany, Sweden, and it might be no surprise to you that countries at the bottom of that list are Syria, Iraq, Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan. So I enjoy a great deal of travel freedom. Indeed, in the front of my passport, the Secretary of State requests and requires, in the name of Her Majesty, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to offer the bearers such assistance and protection as may be necessary. But those who do migrate do not always have these freedoms. We are not all allowed to pass freely without let or hindrance. We're not always offered such assistance and protection as may be necessary. And in 2018, there are few who would not argue that the lived experiences of migration can produce inherent vulnerabilities. Many of us are familiar with stories of physical perilous journeys at sea, precarious living conditions, and complex survival strategies. Indeed, the governing of migration can in turn generate and produce vulnerabilities. The immigration policies of states, structured at various stages of the asylum process, have stratified rights, individual rights, and this has helped to create the conditions which severely limit the options available to many refugees. And as such, I want to evoke a dialogical understanding of vulnerability, which is crucial to reorientate us away from the concept of individual behaviors and towards social structures, by which I'm including here immigration policies. Seeking asylum is not a new phenomena. It's part of broader migratory movements of human beings across the globe. And asylum, the term itself, is a derivative term from a Greek word, an ancient word which means cannot be seized or violated, and our records date back to the 13th or 14th century. Important then was the concept of a sacred place where a person could be protected, and a person's reason for going there was not considered. Similarly, in the 19th and early 20th century, people's motives for migration and their experiences of vulnerability remained relatively unexamined. This image here from the Second World War, when tens of thousands of people from across Europe sought refuge in the Middle East and how different those stories were when refugee camps operated um, for Europeans in Aleppo, Syria, Nusrat, Palestine and camps across Egypt. However, in the 21st century, the stories we can tell about migrants are increasingly informed by powerful narratives of exclusion and expulsion and the rapid growth of stories about unwanted migrant populations has facilitated the increasing regulation of migration. Indeed, managing migration into Europe has become a central issue for European Union member states, dominating public policy and political agendas. And the rise of managed migration regimes over the past two decades are increasingly (coughs) characterized by the notion of protecting EU states from national security concerns, organized crime, and unsustainable migratory flows. With the right to seek asylum undermined by varying and diametric responses at a European Union, nation state, and personal level, the refugee frequently emerges, along with other migrants, as a salient marker of unwanted populations. So European Union states, many of which are struggling with a sense of vulnerability because of economic crisis and austerity, have created physical walls, barriers fences in response to immigration. European Union has trebled spending on border defense, substantially increasing the available resources to carry out operations in the Mediterranean. And it's established a new European border uh, border and coast guard to reinforce the management and security of the EU's common borders. But narratives of exclusion and, and expulsion of refugees and other migrants, they're not entirely linear. Acts of welcome by citizens across Europe from the late 2015 onwards, such as the Refugees' Welcome Movement, have renewed and indicated practices of sanctuary and hospitality. And in the UK context, for example, citizens have been donating stuff to refugee camps in mainland Europe. We also know there have been widespread demonstrations across Europe with many marching to say refugees are welcome, as well as firebombings and calls for refugees and migrants to go home. And of course, the UK referendum on membership of the European Union in June 2016 included powerful stories about the threat of refugees amassed on EU borders. This, coupled with a generalized fear of immigration, reconfigured free movement within Europe as a problem. So in many ways, these stories were highlighted in the 2015 European crisis about refugees, which received a great deal of media, public and policy attention. And numbers of people displaced across the globe had dramatically increased. The key focus of many European stories was on the number of people migrating into Europe. And these stories stimulated highly differentiated policies and practices. Actions ranged from the Hungarian Prime Minister announcing plans to build a fortified fence at their border uh, Germany's extensive policies of welcome and the spontaneous appearance of a a diverse volunteer army at multiple points along the 2,000-mile-long refugee trail across Europe, providing shelter, blankets, food, simple acts of of, of kindness. We also witnessed people attempting to enter Europe and using sheer numbers to their advantage, and I'm talking here about the fence charges at Melilla, uh, the Spanish-Moroccan border, I'm talking about those who were pulling down the barricades at Macedonia and the lorry and train jumpers at Calais, France. And those people who embedded themselves with the hundreds of no-border activists walking across frontiers. This image here shows new arrivals walking across the motorways (coughs) of Hungary and Austria, carrying the European flag, bringing into question not only the principles of asylum and free movement within the European Union, but Europe's very idea of who belongs. Indeed, challenging the story of Europe as a space of tolerance, liberal values, freedom, social justice, human rights. And to complicate this crisis further, as Nando Sagorna rightly highlights, there is no refugee crisis in the UK. The UK's share of asylum applications actually decreased during the EU refugee crisis, and a similar pattern also emerges from the data on unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. However, in a unilateral approach to broader discussions about a potential European-wide response, on the 29th of January, 2014, the former Home Secretary, Theresa May, announced the Syrian Vulnerable Person Resettlement Programme. And the story underpinning this policy was that the programme would provide a route for selected Syrian, or rather vulnerable Syrian refugees, to come to the UK. The government attempted to legitimise the programme by saying it would prioritise Syrians who were refugees and, for a number, from a number of specific categories, considered the most vulnerable. These were victims of sexual violence and torture, the elderly, the disabled and there was no fixed quota at the time. The government announced it expected to receive about several several hundred over the next three years. Of course, um, such resettlement programs are not new to UK. Similar programs have been um, implemented periodically in response to specific crises. But what was new about the Syrian program was the additional categorization of the most vulnerable, and of course, Relocating vulnerable refugees from across uh, other parts of the world does nothing to address those people who are displaced within Europe. Prioritising vulnerable individuals and groups has long been an argument for special protections and relocating resources. This is where the vulnerable become a marker of deservingness by their need. This powerful narrative has rapidly gained dominance in populist in stories, and it shapes policies, social agendas, and interventions. And in relation to the plight of displaced people and protection agendas, for some, this appears a, pro- a progressive development. It can be utilized to address human rights and social injustices and inequality agendas. Indeed, the Strasbourg court has used the concept of vulnerable groups in society to include specific groups of asylum seekers. But this can lead to the denial and neglect of the importance of the political in refugees' experiences of exile, and it potentially conceals the present and past involvement of the West in producing the causes of forced migration. Set against the current backdrop of welfare conditionality, economic crisis, and austerity in the UK, the elevation of some vulnerable groups have been evoked to support and justify policy developments and the allocation of resources, and this has a powerful effect on those who are considered vulnerable, but also on those who are not. There are often points in history where certain stories evoke a dramatic response to vulnerability, and in recent times and our understandings of the figure of the refugee, one image was particularly powerful. On the 2nd of September 2015, the drowned body of a three-year-old boy, Alan Curdy, was found, washed up on a beach at Bodrum, Turkey. And photographs of Alan's body, taken by journalist Nalufa Demir, rapidly became iconic images. And researchers at the Sheffield, um, at the Visual Social Media Lab in Sheffield, have discussed how these images changed some of the stories that were generated about refugees on social media. For example, Proctor and Yamada Rice engaged with one specific element of the photographs, Alan's shoes, which they suggest became a visual symbol of his helplessness and need for protection, a story that indicates both vulnerability and innocence. These photographs emboldened a narrative of compassion across Europe in relation to Syrian refugees and children. And it was not only a narrative evoked by law and policy makers, but it was also told told by pro-asylum organisations and advocates. But stories can be fragile, and the narrative of compassion was violently disrupted by the terror attacks in Paris on the 13th of November, 2015. It was reported that a passport belonging to a Syrian refugee was found at the scene. So for refugees long synonymized with vagrant, with the vagrant criminal, illegal, illegal and bogus, there was now another story, potential terrorist. As Thomas Nail points out, every refugee and migrant has now explicitly become a potential terrorist and vice versa. Two figures have been transformed into the other's virtual double. The migrant is a potential terrorist hiding in the crowd of migrants. And the terrorist is a potential migrant ready to move into Europe at any point, at any moment. So undoing much of the narrative of compassion that arose with the image of Alan Kurdi and his death, the enduring story that the refugee could be a potential terrorist served to justify an increasing restrictive and regulatory function in UK immigration policy. Whilst the UK announced it would extend the Syrian Vulnerable Persons Programme and relocate 20,000 Syrian refugees by 2020, it reinstated the program in the face of criticism that the UK government was doing very little um, for those people currently displaced across Europe. And the political reasoning behind this limited humanitarian response is clear. The May's government suggests that acts of compassion an intervention for those attempting to enter or those already within European borders act as a pull factor to encourage other would-be entrants to keep coming. Hence, any intervention for those at the border or within Europe should be discouraged, regardless of how vulnerable they may be. And the government deems it sends the wrong signal to would-be migrants. And these points were solidified in an article written by Theresa May in in 2015 in The Times where she says, the UK cannot do anything which encourages more people to make these perilous journeys. So, using the United Nations High Commission for Refugee Vulnerability criteria, which is what's applied for the resettlement programme in terms of of the Syrian Vulnerable Person Programme, Priority is given to those people who are assessed to be in desperate need of assistance and cannot be supported effectively in their region of origin. Of course, the introduction and the expansion of this programme has reconfigured the concept, therefore, of of the refugee through notions both of vulnerability but also deservingness in distant places. And the story of the figure of the vulnerable Syrian refugee is of deep concern for a number of reasons, no less because it undermines the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which guarantees each and every one of us here the right to seek asylum. Also, in signing the 1951 Refugee Convention and the 1967 Protocol relating to the status of refugees alongside other European asylum instruments that protect civil, political, economic, and social rights, European states explicitly acknowledge the imperative of offering protection to refugees within their nation borders. Therefore, prioritizing and elevating the the vulnerable refugee excludes certain refugees from even being recognized as refugees. And this violates the principle of non-discrimination, including on grounds of nationality and equal protection of the law that's contained within Article 3 of the Convention relating to the status of refugees. And more recently, new stories about the vulnerable are emerging and continually narrowing protection for refugees. In February 2017, The Independent reported that the Home Office has been refusing to consider applications from children with disabilities since at least the beginning of 2017. The United Nations has confirmed that the Home Office has paused new referrals from people with mobility problems and learning difficulties. Refugees are considered too vulnerable, and as such, undeserving of protection within the new asylum policy developments. So whilst narratives of vulnerability can bolster those who are seen to be the most vulnerable, and also solidify their deservingness because of vulnerability, they can also be used to construct and sanction an exclusionary narrative of vulnerability that is actively depriving and systematically disentitling many refugees from protections, rights and resources on the very basis of vulnerability. So the process by which narratives are constructed and the purpose that they serve have very tangible consequences for those who are seeking asylum. Indeed, in August 2017, the Independent reported that only 5% of refugees who have been settled through, resettled through the Syrian program have mobility issues or special educational needs or other disabilities. Yet findings from research with Syrian refugees in Jordan and Lebanon suggest that at least 30% of refugees have specific needs. They identify one in five refugees is affected by physical, sensory or intellectual impairment, one in seven is affected by chronic disease, and one in 20 suffers from injury, um, with nearly 80% of those injuries resulting directly from the Syrian conflict. We will probably all recall, too, that when a small group of refugee children were relocated to the UK from a Calais refugee camp in 2016, despite their legal rights to come to the UK, these children had their ages challenged and their identities called into question. The images I show here have been redacted, but the popular press afforded these children no such privacy. Their faces were paraded on the front page of the papers. The media, for the most part, was not interested in the children's potential vulnerability or the benefits of offering them refuge or their agency and subjectivity, but on the possible risk posed to adults trying to pass themselves off as children in order to take advantage of the benefit system. These children were not childlike, not vulnerable enough. That is not to say that these stories did not go unchallenged. Twitter users had their own way of intervening by posting pictures of themselves at the same age. So in the UK, two main routes into the UK have emerged. First, the Syrian Vulnerable Persons Resettlement Programme, and second, spontaneous asylum seeking in all its diverse forms. And it it is these two routes that illustrate the latest hierarchy of rights and entitlements for refugees in the UK. For example, refugees coming through the Syrian Programme were initially given humanitarian protection status with permission to work and access to public funds. They receive a tailored integration package in the initial year, and key documents they need to access services upon arrival. Entitlements under the program have been further enhanced and on the 22nd of March 2017, Amber Rudd, Secretary of State for the Home Office, issued a written ministerial statement in the House House of Lords which changed the legal status of those coming in on the program. Those admitted into the UK now through the Syrian Vulnerable Persons Program are given refugee status. Those who've already been admitted are given the right to change their status from humanitarian protection to become refugees. Rudd suggested that the additional entitlement will help these vulnerable people. And the scope of the program was amended again on the 3rd of July, 2017. Rudd presented a further written statement to the House of Lords, which meant that the program would now include the most vulnerable refugees in the MENA region who have fled the Syrian conflict and cannot return safely to their countries of origin. So this is a new and emerging policy that increasingly relies on understandings of the vulnerable as a marker of deservingness in order to increase rights and assistance. The Syrian Vulnerable Person Resettlement Programme stands in stark contrast to spontaneous asylum seeking. The latter group enters a far riskier riskier situation within the asylum process, and the vast majority of spontaneous asylum seekers are excluded from any additional entitlements. For decades, immigration policy and social order have have long kept the stories of vulnerabilities, violence, global inequalities, and injustices, largely hidden from European publics. At the same time, border controls directed towards managing refugees coming into neoliberal democracies have become increasingly punitive. And within these con- this context, those who do cre- uh, cross-nation borders face security and management in various forms, such as incarceration, forced dispersal, surveillance, and the criminalizing of a wider and wider range of activities. As a result of successive legislative changes, people seeking asylum in the UK have been separated from mainstream welfare provisions while their asylum claim is assessed. Provided with extremely limited and highly conditional support, many are excluded from very basic standards of living. The lives of those seeking asylum are widely recognised as vulnerable, and they're characterised by, amongst a number of things, poverty, social exclusion, destitution, this can be seen as a process of the state vulnerabilizing individuals, producing vulnerabilities where they may not have previously existed. My friend and colleague, John Grayson, he's an independent activist researcher in the social movement organization, CIMAG. Um, he's been researching and campaigning on a, asylum housing since 2011. And in the process of his research, he regularly takes photographs of the kinds of housing provided to those seeking asylum. And through my frontline work at Women's Center, we often collaborate and he comes out and uh, records some of the properties. And this is uh, one that was taken in Halifax, um, a cot with no mattress for a newborn baby in 2017. Asylum housing is uh, publicly subsidized housing for around 40,000 asylum seekers um, and their families who are waiting for an outcome on their decision of their asylum claim and they're dispersed across the UK. It's also housing which is part of the reception of those seeking asylum, and here is another image from Sheffield taken in 2014, um, where the family had used, or the mother had used a a cloth to prevent the rats from running up the stairs. This was a a single room for a baby, a four-month-year-old, and a, a lone mother. And since 2012, housing and transport contracts for asylum housing were awarded by the Home Office to three private security companies, which include G4S, um, the largest security company in the world, Serco, a security and defence industry company, and and the smaller company Reliance. Uh, None of these companies had any previous experience of social housing. Um, Prior to this, it was mainly local authorities who provided accommodation to those seeking asylum. This is a, an image here from a shower in a hostel, um, a hostel which houses 12 mothers and 11 babies and toddlers. It was taken in March 2015, uh, again in, the, in Yorkshire and Humber region. All three companies who were awarded the asylum accommodation contracts already had contracts in the Home Office around detention and in the deportation state, um, managing immigration removal centres and providing escorts for people who were being deported. And the asylum housing contract was the largest ever offered by the Home Office, um, about 1.7 billion to be spent over the five years. A significant percentage of the asylum housing provided under the contract has been described as atrocious, by parliamentary inquiries, by the Home Affairs Committee in 2013 and in 2016, and by the Public Accounts Committee in 2014. Um, these contracts are now up for tender, so by September this year um, all the bids will be in, um, and it's believed that probably those three uh, providers will, con- will be the uh, only bidders. It's unlikely that local authorities will bid for this contract. So Here we have a three-year-old in a top flat in a fire hazard, um, three-storey building with inadequate guarding at the window. This is a, a family hostel, again, for mothers and toddlers and babies. I think there are some couples in there too. Indeed, there's a long-standing and growing body of evidence in the UK about the vulnerabilizing effect of multiple and intersecting aspects of the asylum system. <coughs> For example, the parliamentary inquiry of 2013 into asylum support for children and young people stated that successive UK governments have failed children. By delivering an asylum support system that keeps children in poverty, the government denies um, asylum-seeking families the resources they need to even meet basic needs. And In response to the parliamentary inquiry, Uh, Dr. Kelly Lockwood from the University of Salford and myself decided to run a small research project and take a very localised approach to what was happening in Kirklees in 2015. So we ran a focus group and a number of uh, in-depth interviews with mothers asking them about asylum support provided by the Home Office in relation to the needs of their children and young people. One of the themes to Emerge um, out of that work was the vulnerabilizing of children and, uh, and young people in terms of their essential living needs. So the mothers who were interviewed oft- told us they often had to decide between whether to provide food for their children or pay for other things. As Yai told us, we don't even have like three meals a day because everything is expensive. With that money we have to buy the soap, the cleaning materials, bus pass money, so sometimes we have to cut on the food. There were particular challenges as well of living on um, what's known as Section 4 support. Some of you might be familiar with it, it's a cashless form of support and it restricts shopping to certain designated retail outfits, uh, outlets which frequently do not sell a range of, uh, of culturally specific food and they're certainly much more expensive than local markets. As Jane said, I want my daughter to know her culture but can't buy her the food. Women also told us they were unable to pay for essential clothes for their children. Clothes I get from charity. Not charity to buy, can't go to the shop to buy the dress. I just have to survive with the second-hand clothes, said Jane. And while some clothing could be acquired, underwear uh, proved a very sensitive issue. I go to Primark for knickers, but the bras, I don't buy bras, I cannot afford bras. I cannot afford them because the cheapest bra you get is five pound. I'd rather get a, sec- a second hand bra and give it to my daughter. A culturally specific element of mothering can be a mother supporting her daughter's transition um, from girl to woman. And for Yai, being unable to buy a new bra generated immense feelings of vulnerability and anxiety and distress. Access to healthcare was a further theme owing to financial limitations and immigration status. As Shanaz told us, I can't even get the Health Start vouchers. I can't get the vouchers even for baby. I don't have money to buy even paracetamol. I remember there was a time when I fall on the stairs. I was going to physiotherapy every week. Where am I going to get the money? Such restrictions cause avoidable hardships and vulnerabilities, impacting the physical and mental health and well-being of asylum seekers and the theme of poverty ran across the mothers' stories. Mothers struggled to provide basic educational resources for their children, such as books and stationery. School uniform and school trips placed an additional financial burden on the families. Those seeking asylum were also dispersed on a no-choice basis, and while seeking asylum, families may be moved multiple times. The associated vulnerabilities caused by these disruptions were all factors affecting their children. Well it told us that she was redispersed within Kirk Lees, but she was unable to get a new school for her um, to secure a new school place for her daughter. So she continued to take her to the old school but without the cash she would tell the bus driver that her daughter was four and a half years old to avoid paying any fare. Her daughter was just seven years old was just under seven years old at the time. So didn't have the money for bus fare. So I need money every week for the ticket. Sometimes we just walk, but in the morning it's so important not to be late. It's like 40 minutes going fast, and you know it's uphill, and I have the baby. So the morning I lie, my daughter's four years and a half, because I don't have anything. You may be aware that further legislation has been brought in since since 2015 when this report was written and it's actually reduced asylum support levels for families. This is likely to be causing further vulnerabilities in the lives of those seeking asylum in the UK. And the recent provision too, in the Immigration Acts of 2014 and 2016, clearly seek to extend the state's deterrence approach by creating a hostile environment. In brief, the Immigration Act of 2016 has focused on three main areas. Dealing with exploitation of low-skilled workers by increasing the penalties for employing illegal workers and those working illegally. Preventing irregular migrants from accessing services such as privately rented housing, bank accounts and driving licences and making it easier to remove people from the UK if they do not have a valid immigration status, including by extending the use of electronic tagging, restricting appeal rights and increasing immigration officers' powers. The new provisions will have a dramatic impact on the lives of those seeking asylum. They include the removal of accommodation and subsistence for many of those who have been refused asylum. This too can be understood as contributing To creating conditions where vulnerabilities are produced through the asylum system. The dominant narrative of excluding and expelling those seeking asylum was made stark at the Conservative Party conference in October 2015. When Theresa May outlined this this asylum strategy, she made a distinction between the provisions and entitlements of Syrian refugees deserving by their vulnerability. Criticising the current asylum system, which he claims rewards the wealthiest, the luckiest and the strongest people, and denies support to the most vulnerable and most in need, the approach to asylum was outlined, and it is this, to offer asylum and refuge to people in parts of the world affected by conflict and oppression, rather than those who have made it to Britain, to work to reduce the asylum claims made in Britain." So to just draw together a few um, points here now, I've sought to shine a light really on the idea of narratives of vulnerability in relation to the figure of, of the refugee. And these are narratives that I think map onto divisions between the deserving and the undeserving refugee. And they reinforce the notion that vulnerable refugees from some countries are deserving beneficiaries of protection, whilst others are not. So stories of vulnerability are taking on new and emerging meanings. They're reinventing long-standing social, economic and cultural divisions, and they're underpinning policy interventions and developments. They need reassessment, exploration and questioning, as they impact on those who are identified as vulnerable and those who are storied as undeserving. But this is not merely an issue of storytelling. The process by which narratives are constructed and the purpose that they serve have very tangible consequences. So whilst we might might recognize the lived experience of migration can produce inherent (laughs) vulnerabilities, it is also the case that the governing of migration, storied in relation to the vulnerable, justified in the name of both security and the refugee crisis, can generate vulnerabilities in turn. I suggest that narratives are central to how the world is understood. And as Plummer states, we need always be mindful of the tales we tell and the tales we hear, for stories have consequences and their documents are our futures. Indeed, the overwhelming policy direction of travel in Europe, especially since the European crisis of 2015 onwards, has been of restrictionism and border hardening, systematically disentitling many refugees from protection, rights and resources. Drawing on narratives of vulnerability has enabled the UK to differentiate rights and narrow the protection space for refugees. We see a state-driven momentum away from spontaneous asylum-seeking to the creation of controlled routes of entry into the UK for a specified and limited number of refugees. Through narratives of vulnerability, the rights of people to seek asylum is undermined, and this reflects an insidious shift in refugee regulation and management narratives of vulnerability are being employed as a morally-informed justification device for stronger social control mechanisms and governance. And this approach functions alongside multiple aspects of the existing asylum system which generate and produce vulnerabilities where they may not have previously existed. To be recognised now and storied as a refugee means being identified and characterised as vulnerable because narratives do not simply reflect the world. They simultaneously create and limit it. And there are significant risks by simply working with dominant narratives that exclude and expel refugees, including those who are deemed too vulnerable. I suggest we challenge and disrupt those narratives and refute the notion that refugees constructed within the narrative of vulnerability are somehow more deserving than others. It's crucial we reconsider and rethink stories about the figure of the refugee because narratives produce borders They are not only physical walls and fences. They are spaces of non-rights, reduced citizenships. They are places of degrading and dehumanizing stories. They are a place where the vulnerable have become a marker for the brave new world of refugee policy. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Do people, there are a few more seats at the front. Are, are people able to hear at the back there or do you want to move forward? Do you want to, I mean, there, are, there are a few more seats here if anyone wants to move forward. No? Okay. Thank you very much for that. Thank you um, for that. Fascinating but also very um, sort of moving in many ways to talk. Um, I'm going to open it up for questions. I mean, I suppose just to... to maybe kick us off a little bit and also maybe to pick up one of the threads um, from our previous discussions. Last week we, um, as I mentioned, we heard from Jonathan Herring who was talking about vulnerability in the law and one of the things he was talking about was the idea of moving, advocating the idea of moving away from the notion of the vulnerable as this group of people who um, need responses towards an idea of kind of universal vulnerability that we all have needs we're all differently abled we all need to be um, uh, looked after by, by the law in that way. It seems to me this is possibly a situation where that idea is broken down, in that that we have a right to asylum which is a universal right based on the idea that we're all vulnerable and that we all may, may need to seek asylum. And those of us in Europe and, and, and other parts, fortunately enough in, in other parts of the world, have come to view we're no longer that we're you know, we're, we're no longer the person who may one day have to seek asylum The asylum seeker is always going yeah. to be be, be be the other is going to be um Somewhere else and then these, these multiple vulnerabilities that you talk about sort of arise from that So if we can't have a universal vulnerability if we can't if, if there are dangers associated with trying to identify the vulnerable I mean do, do, is there still a war, does vulnerability still have a, a positive, the notion of vulnerability still have a positive role to play in that context?
1: It's an interesting question, I mean, I, I've really tried to bring this in, the notion of vulnerability against the backdrop of asylum, where I think it's really, really problematic. I think the concept of asylum and the refugees has always been uh, challenging in multiple ways anyway, and is a very narrow, narrow definition. Um, I mean, the definition of who is a refugee really came out of the Second World War, and concepts that never again should there be such wide placed, uh wide displacement of people who could not actively cross borders and seek asylum. That was the notion, and yet it was very narrowly conceived. Um, for example, there was never there was never a notion that you may be persecuted by your, because of your gender, and therefore gender, it doesn't feature on the, the the reasons why you might seek asylum in the first place. So it's a pretty narrow uh, space in which to be defined as a refugee anyway. When you add the additional notion that we're actually prioritizing those who are extremely vulnerable, I think it's becoming really problematic. Now whether it's problematic as a concept in a broader sense, that's a, perhaps a slightly different question, but certainly as it relates to the refugee and understandings of migration and movements of people, I think, it, it, well, obviously, I find it very, very problematic and a very narrow um, understanding of what was already conceived as a very narrow space. Um, honouring the right to seek asylum would be m- my argument here, as opposed to honouring the right to be defined as vulnerable and therefore allocated r- resources. Um And there's something here as well about the power of the state to decide who does and doesn't. And I think we should all inherently recognize we may all need to seek asylum. That is ultimately whoever we are, whatever privileged place we may come from, the right to seek asylum is your right as a human being. And that needs to be retained uh, in these debates. And that we are definitely losing sight of, I would say. Does that answer your question yes, I there, think Peter? Possibly. <laughs> Bits but, but,
0: but perhaps <laughs> we'll think of it in subsequent seminars. Um, can I open it up then? Can I see the indications, Alison? I'll start. Thank you so much for that.
2: Um, in the beginning, oh, sorry.
3: in the beginning, I had the sense that you were drawing a distinction between a narrative and a story. I was less sure of that by the end. Okay. But I just was hoping you could talk a little bit more about if you see a narrative to be a broader a broader framework, and if so, who constructs it.
1: Yes, I do. I think narratives are um, the broader, perhaps discourses might be more common language. I, I'm much more uh, comfortable with the concept of narrative that frames our stories and shapes it. It means that some stories are possible to be told, whilst others remain either untellable or unhearable, because actually the, the, the cultural context within which you tell that story is very important, and it's historical, and it's temporal, and it takes place within um, certain spaces Um, And those would be those dominant narratives that shape those stories, and so therefore when we look at this in relation to the refugee, I try to indicate that actually historically we've not always positioned the refugee in the way that we now are reconceiving ideas of the refugee, and therefore it's very um, fragile stories, they can shift and change, so therefore The other interesting point about this is that we shift the narratives in the space here as well by our dialogues and by our discussions. And I'm interested in what our role is within that um, as researchers and our responsibility towards the broader narratives of how we speak and how we reconceive um, and talk about refugees. Does that answer that kind of relationship? Yeah, between stories and narratives. (laughs)
4: Yeah.
5: Um, thank you. Um, Rocky from King's College, London. Um, thank you for a really rich presentation with a lot to think about. Um, I, I think you, you said somewhat that your answers to you know, kind of honoring the right of asylum and that kind of move away from that vulnerability narrative. Um, but it seems to me like at some point in, in, in what you're presenting, I wasn't sure the, whether the problem was um, vulnerability itself or the rights regime more broadly. Um, in the sense that I, th- I think there is a question of like you would say that you have a right to asylum, but you know, what are the corresponding duties that you know that states or other individuals have towards these people? And it feels to me that a more intuitive answer would be to say that you know, our relationships to, um, our relationships to people who 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 might seem to be vulnerable or at least are defined as vulnerable in relation to us would better underpin the kind of duties that states or individuals would have um, to the group of refugees. Um, in, the sense that, um, in the sense that using vulnerability as a lens allows us to recognize the way in which there's certain kind of power relations between people and borders. So I, I think that's where, that's where like, you know, vulnerability becomes useful in, in that sense as a concept. Um, you know, and to pick up one thing that you kind of pointed at the start, um, of the, towards the start of the presentation, is that you you said that states are also in some sense vulnerable to this large influx of 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 people, and, and and that's really interesting because like then there's a certain kind of description like can a state be vulnerable in a sense, or are you really pointing to you know individuals w- within the state? And going back to the question of you know a claim, you know a claim to universal vulnerability, that everyone's vulnerable. Um, I wonder if. Um, formulate this, um, you know, can we really allow states to claim that they're vulnerable in that sense? Um, you know, one possible analogy would be to say that, you know, for example, um, you know, in the pushback against multiculturalism in, in the states or everywhere else, you can say that, you know, um, white people are also vulnerable to the claims that, you know, other races have or, you know, to affirmative action and things like that it makes us vulnerable as well. And in some ways, that that makes you know that makes it once, once you open up the, the claim to vulnerability to as a universal claim, I think like a lot of these questions come in, you know, like that seem intuitively problematic. So I, I wonder what would be the, sort of, the a political move to say that you know to build solidarity between people. Ooh. <laughs>
1: One of the things I'm interested in is the ways in which narratives come to dominate. Whether they're a reality or not, whether states states are vulnerable or aren't, claiming vulnerability has enabled certain behaviours at government levels to be made. So an example, I'm not quite sure if I'm quite answering what you say, but it was making me think. So I would say, for example, you're probably familiar with the idea of... um, the Mediterranean coast, the, the whole the whole issue of the Mediterranean being policed, and the concept that if you prevent people from actually entering nation borders. Um, and how would you justify this? How would you say, when we are all aware, through social media and other reporting, of the numbers of deaths that are happening? I mean, I think we're looking, um, 2004, something like this, in the last few months alone, 2,400 people dying at sea, women, children and men. And yet states can claim their vulnerability in terms of sheer numbers as a justification for allowing that to happen. So it's like the state trumping in terms of its claim around vulnerability. And So whilst I see now that this seminar is probably working on discussions around vulnerability in much broader terms than I may be looking at it, I have a real problem with states staking a claim in vulnerability in the way that they are and justifying responses. I'm putting millions and billions of pounds into um, what, in effect, is um, allowing people to die at sea by preventing them from reaching borders. And the other thing is it was really stark with David Cameron at the time claiming, um, I didn't raise it, but after the death of Alan Kurdi, one of the claims the counterclaims was that we owe it to people this was a these were government statements to prevent them from making those journeys so we will blow up the boats so it was we'll blow up smugglers boats so it was seen as a to so the compassionate narrative of our vulnerability was our state is too vulnerable this actually this we relocate where the problem lies and we'll destroy the boats so it did nothing to help anybody who was displaced across the globe and where the UK responsibility might be responsible for some of those forced migratory journeys. Um, so the state as vulnerable, plays a part here. I haven't quite grasped all the bits of that, but, but, uh, but I, I'm more interested in the narrative behind it, why you would state claims in telling certain stories, rather than is the state actually vulnerable or not. Does that make sense? That's a narrative approach much more um, than whether it's a lived, whether e- e- economic crisis, whether austerity is real or not. It's how it's storied and what it then does to people in terms of their lived experiences. Thank you.
0: see? Yes.
6: <laughs> Hi, thank you very much. Um, I'm Lewis Turner from SOAS. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you a bit about gender. Um, because it was kind of lurking in some of the things you said, but you didn't explicitly talk about it sometimes. So, uh, for example, when you were talking about refugees becoming seen as terrorists, it's not the women who are seen as terrorists, almost always. Similarly, I think the reaction to uh, the, the boys who came from... The children who came from Calais was because they were boys who looked like, in you know, a like racist discourse, looked like men. And I think if they had been girls who were seen to plausibly be women, we would have seen an entirely different reaction to that. And I think we see this replicated also in the vulnerable person's relocation scheme. We see it replicated in Canada's exclusion of heterosexual single men from its uh, relocation scheme, Uh, they didn't call it that, but from its relocation program as well. Um, And so it felt like this was just beneath the surface of what you were saying, but wasn't quite being named. So I wondered if you had any Reflections oh, yes, on thank that.
1: you for raising it. I mean, actually, mo- a lot of my work really does look much more about women than the more general kind of themes that have emerged here. And I think one of the issues—well, in fact, I feel like you've almost said it—the invisibility of women in in this whole discussion is, yeah, it's like it's marginalised and overlooked. So what you have is uh, fears of young men. Uh, I think, again, exemplified through the kind of repeated media stories around the Calais um, train jumpers. Uh, again, the images of... When I talked about the Melilla, uh, Melilla at the Spanish Moroccan border and Macedonia pulling down the fences, these are largely conceived as as young men. Uh, uh, and then, again, the notion of the potential terrorist, again, synonymous with, uh, with the male and um, children for the for the great part here have kind of come through um, where I would say that even five years ago we were not talking about children in the way that we are talking about children seeking asylum more now than we were before. But but where are we talking about women? We're only talking about women really in relation to being mothers within family units, being dependents um, on asylum claims and largely absent from most of those discussions about... Um, journeys. Again families, family units is largely where you see discussions about women taking place um, and not not in other places um, but for the first time we, like on a practical level 50% of those who were seeking asylum were children um, and then again if you look at the stats where women came in they usually conceived with those children so this becomes really problematic for our ideas about women and that infantilising of who they are and what their role is and um, beyond being mothers so um, a little bit of it maybe came out in the research around mothers that i talked about but again those are kind of largely conceived as gendered roles of mothers caring for children struggling in the asylum support system being vulnerabilized through the uh, asylum support system yeah thank you for raising that
7: yeah Oh yeah, in just in relation to this um, this last point, I was thinking um, how much women are vulnerable, vulnerableized. Yeah, um, not really just um, uh, in in terms of refugees, but in in daily life. I mean, for example, um, if a woman walks home alone at night, she is considered more vulnerable than if a man does the same. So, is is this also? Um, something for which the state is responsible or do you see that as more uh, um, uh, something related to our culture? Are we all responsible for considering women more vulnerable or or should we keep doing this because they actually are? They, they are more attacked. What, what do you think? I think
1: more women are attacked in their domestic situations. They so did you say women out in, at night? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in reality, more women are attacked and killed and harmed in their domestic environments than they are out at night by random strangers, which is often the kind of. Um... And who is responsible? Who is responsible for our cult? I would say our. Oh, these are really big
7: questions. <laughs> no, yeah. I, guess I was more of about... to, to, to consider women vulnerable, is it. Is it right or is it um, a gender bias, you know? I mean, is it, um, yes, that's, I guess, was a question. I I think it's probably both.
1: Mm. Um, I think it is a gender bias, our concept, but I also know that two women are killed every week in the UK alone um, by people that they know. and the stats are disproportionate in terms of domestic abuse and violence, in terms of sustained violence against women and multiple attacks by people they know largely. So we know that there's a lived reality to a cultural context as as well in which we um, locate and make sense of who women are, including as ourselves. Um, I I think starting from a concept of vulnerability as innate in somebody is... is, I I mean, I'm an utterly believer in narrative work and constructionism so therefore I do not believe anyone is innately anything I think we are all born into um, our context and our social situations and that is fluid and it changes and it can be changed and um, we can struggle for that and we can we can shift narratives and we should be disrupting them we should be changing them Um, and it is everybody's responsibility Um, and at the time I believe power is more fluid than we sometimes perceive it so um, I know I did talk quite often about broad brushstrokes when I talked about the state, but I was trying very much to map that to policies rather than just concepts of um, the us and them ideas. So, um, not answering this as clearly as you want, because I think it's much greyer and it's a place of undigging and discussion, really. Yeah, yeah. Um. Sure.
8: Thank you. Okay.
7: <laughs>
4: um,
8: well, Kate, it, I'm kind of cheating because Kate and I have worked together for many years. And I don't know, I mean, I, I'm, maybe I'm the only person who's not an academic or a, a student. Um, I actually work with refugees and have done so for the last 15 or so years. So going back to your question around how women are perceived, having worked you know, with Kate and on women's issues for a number of years, and also having worked with trafficked women and young trafficked women in the UK, um, what's really interesting to me is how women get penalized during the asylum system because they are resilient because they come across as not vulnerable so if women don't display what is considered to be womanly in terms of that exact vulnerability that you maybe were you know referring to then they're not believed and then you know there must be something wrong with them you know because they're not vulnerable so but they're women and we just want to help those vulnerable women so you know i worked over 3 years with over 60 young women 16 to 25 who'd been trafficked to the uk and the the worst thing i've ever heard from from a home office letter or not the worst but one of the things that really shocked was about but you know no sorry cross examination in a tribunal on, on one of my clients who was, I think, about 21 at the time, was, well, you are resilient, aren't you? And as a woman, you're resilient, you can go back to Nigeria and relocate, and, you know, and this is someone with a small child who'd been trafficked quite young. But interestingly, so that's the context for the UK, and I'm also from Spain, so when you were referring to the Malilla crossings, Spain, and, you know, you're all talking about narrative and stories, and and obviously I can't, frame this academically in the good way but maybe you can tell me what your interpretation is a big big story was on the wall in Melilla was when this mother who traveled all the journey from i think as far as mali i'm not quite sure if she was from mali and what she did she handed over her baby because she was too weak to climb so she handed over the baby who was then in spain and she ran away she was vilified by the Spanish press. So the narrative about you know, her vulnerability or her putting her child first was totally kind of turned around. And I have to say, I didn't find anyone in Spain at the time, family, friends, who understood why that woman had done that. So I don't know, i just throw it out there and see if you can tell me what, what that narrative was about.
1: really moved by that story. Thank you for sharing it, Carolina. Um, yes, thanks. that's
3: okay. that's okay. just speak very loudly. I need to look at yeah. my notes, otherwise it lose the okay. Okay. Thank you. Me. No, that's okay. So this is a very powerful picture that you have presented of a vulnerable uh, situation in which many refugees uh, find themselves in uh, the UK and also in other European countries. But staying with the theme of narratives, I think that pointing out of, the pointing out of vulnerability is itself a type of narrative construction which has uh, a lot of ethical and moral associations. And I think that uh, the narratives that are circulating within Europe and also elsewhere are actually quite um, divisive. So the left and the right both have very specific narratives that are fundamentally uh, opposed to one another. Uh, But I think here that uh, the key point I want to make is that both the left and the right wing uh, dominant narratives are both quite problematic. Uh, So for example, if you take the left wing narrative of acceptance and hospitality, and you try to universalize it, uh, then that would lead to quite substantial uh, challenges. So for example, one recent critique of the German uh, policy of accepting refugees uh, has been to point out the fact that people who make it over to Europe are precisely the least uh, vulnerable. So they're usually people with money because uh, it's money that enables them to make the trip uh, over and they're very often people who are also quite educated. So for example, a very large proportion of Syrian doctors now live in Germany, the same thing for uh, engineers. And then the question becomes what will happen uh, with, uh, for example, Syria um, after the war when when it has to be reconstructed, if most of its doctors and most of its uh, engineers are um, in Europe. And chances are that they're not going to, uh, to, to go back. Uh, and so for this reason, I think that the narratives of both inclusion and exclusion um, are are quite challenging in terms of the uh, sustainability uh, if they're going to be transformed into uh, policy. So to, to get to my question now, if in fact this is the case, my question is do you think that we can construct a narrative that overcomes this polarity of inclusion uh, and exclusion? And is there any possibility of such an alternative narrative uh, becoming constructed in a way that is uh, emotionally appealing uh, and catchy in the same way as the current left-wing and right-wing narratives of inclusion and exclusion?
1: I mean, the question of catchiness is, of course, always <laughs> a, a, its always a, a part of the narrative discussion because, in reality, uh, debates and uh, dominant narratives arise from very simplistic stories, very... Uh, specific ways of characterizing particular groups. I tried to highlight this with the kind of history of the idea of the refugee that historically, well, initially asylum just being conceived as a sacred place, very little attributed to why someone might go there, and then this shifts and changes, and after the Second World War we see developments around the the politicalization of the refugee, which is a really important and honorable position um, and then that slowly begins to disintegrate until we see current times um, where we see the refugee synonymous with the bogus, the criminal, the, the, all these different kind of terms that, that create the other in that figure. And now we have an a, additional kind of idea about the vulnerable and to be the most vulnerable. Um, and so it's constantly evolving to include, to create insiders and outsiders that is a lot easier to achieve than I, I believe. They're much simpler and quicker. Grasping, you know, you can grasp stories much more simply when you polarize people and you create very simple delineations between those uh, categorizations. Um, so, how we reconceive a narrative that actually—I mean, this way—I kind of went back to some of the original ideas. I mean, I'm interested in this question: How do we build stories between migrants and citizens? that doesn't make it sound as if everybody's competitors for scarce resources. That is a problem in itself, the idea of scarce resources and, and vulnerability, where is where a lot of this derives from. I believe, for example, that the Syrian doctors um, in Germany have every right to seek asylum. That is a projection agenda. It has nothing to do with their vulnerability. Potentially many of them will return or won't, but that wouldn't ever be my um, my interest necessarily. My interest would be around reconceiving... The idea of the, the honouring the right to seek asylum, and and the categories within that are really problematic anyway. Um, I mean, one of the other broader issues is how we reconceive the idea of migrants, which at the moment are being carved up. One of the agendas um, with universities is to have student figures taken out of the migrant figures. Some of you will have heard this. Many many people support this in my own university, but actually, if we do this, we're reinforcing the notion of there are good migrants and there are bad migrants. You know. Students being the good migrants because potentially they will come they will contribute and they will probably go home That would be the kind of narrative that's bound up with the good student migrant um, So I'm not elevating refugees above other categories of migrants. I think the whole idea of, 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 of movement is is quite problematic and how we um, Reconceive a narrative is something I'm interested in how we shift the narrative. I don't know beyond disrupting them at the moment I, I don't have another answer other than that we we reject the ones that are on the table at the moment.
0: Okay, I think those four four indications if you're okay uh, Yes, uh, that's uh, yeah, uh, fine. I'll take two at a time. Uh, I've got some at the front here and, and I've got some at the back and someone else at the back there. So, so.
9: Um, so this is maybe more of a comment than a question. I'm not sure, um, but you you were briefly talking about age, and I think that's a particularly anxious point, at least from the context that I know best, which is Norway. And there was a big whole long debate about um, whether uh, the the ways by which that they age refugees um, is efficient and whether it actually works. Um, and I know I th- I think it was one particular theory about something about how you judge teeth and skeletal. Um, And it was a big, long debate, uh, which really caught on to a a very central, I guess, kind of anxiety about who is vulnerable, and that it's very age-specific. And recently, there was a a change in policy where uh, refugees from Afghanistan, underage ones, um, they were forced to, uh, to go back home after they turned 18. Uh, which has led to a lot of them being stuck in Italy, uh, some in Paris, um, and they're young, a lot of them boys, which kind of catches on to the gender aspect as well. Um, and so that has kind of provoked these counter narratives of our boys in Paris and our boys in Italy. And I wonder if there's been any kind of similar thing in, in Britain about this age anxiety <laughs> that seems to be being there. Yeah. So let's just
0: take two together. To
10: the, back, right, the, back, yeah. the, pink the red Fragmented sound takes <laughs> like a jazz piece, I guess. Um the first one has something came to my mind when we when you refer. And it is to do The 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 black female body, marking two moments um, um, catastrophically, of um, our modern times. The first is the the body of the black woman being thrown overboard in relation to the to the, the Atlantic. The second is on the back of a lorry, travelling from Eritrea, ending up drowning in the Mediterranean. Hmm? And, and the two things, what reminded me, what made me think about that, is to think about the question of what we're discussing, what drew me to discussion, as a way of marking conjuncturally our time. That, that's, that's the first. The, the, the other one is, is, is I guess, um, trying to think with Gad about the, the female body as the sort of absolute mark of borderliness, or borderless world, a borderless world. And what those two things I've said, enables us to reframe a discussion about narrative. Um, And unless we we continue to mark it that way, we continue to come back to the question of regulation. Who's allowed in, who's not? Who's entitled to, who's not? And I know the question about vulnerability is important, but it has to do, seriously speaking, to do with regulation. And the regulated body in this sense in our time is the figure of a black body, a black female body.
4: Thank you um, for this interesting discussion. I was thinking about one of the ways in which one might complicate the narrative structures and the theories of narration that you're talking about is to work with the notion of figuration. Because the, the narrative structures um, and these broad ones, I mean, one thinks of the French way of configuring this as the grand récit and the petit récit, the grand narrative and the small narrative. So your stories are the instantiation of the grand narratives, which is discourse. But none of those work without a figuration. That is, that they are distilled in a figure that comes to occupy a particular kind of, um, yeah. Uh, I don't know, distillation of these ideas in, in a particular body. It's always embodied, and it's always positioned historically, and, and it's always contingent. So I think that this idea of, of, of what is the figure of the refugee or of the cyberseek, etc., would bring in all the stuff around gender and, you know, difference and all these other aspects of it. So. The theory of narrative isn't complete in my view without having some theory of figuration that's, that's in the heart of it I'm interested to hear what you'd
0: say about that. just like he come back and i'll come to you in a second if it's a different question.
4: um
1: so i'll just start with the the age dispute point first of all that you were saying which is really interesting to hear you map it in the way you did because i would say um, those of us who work in services and know about this, is a very similar discussion um, historically within the UK around age dispute. Um, so it's been, there have been discussions which have been rejected um, in terms of the type of invasive testing, um, bone marrow, t- bone testing and things like that in terms of, I mean, partly because it's also been seen as very inaccurate. It could be anything within four years, so th- those kind of problems, but we still see um, children age-disputed, whilst those young people are disputed, they potentially are treated as adults, held in, uh, potentially held in detention facilities. Um, I mean, we actually are seeing quite high numbers, again, of children held in de- immigration removal centres anyway, which shouldn't be happening. It is illegal to hold children, so w- we're seeing this. But the point of the age dispute and the, the child-seeking asylum who are largely, the largest number of which are are Afghani boys, so a similar pattern to Norway. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. And again, um, the the crucial time of of age 17 and a half being the point where asylum decisions then uh, removal can be facilitated in terms of that child turning 18. So unlike other unaccompanied children who in the care system may be supported to 21 or even 25, at 18 it's an absolute crucial time. So these are just very practical answers, um, really. And uh, yet again, largely configured around the boy-child and a a lot more discussion to be had about that, I think, about what that figure uh, represents, um, which maybe leads us on to the next point. Ah, very, very interesting. I just scribbled down a lot of notes. I perhaps don't have an automatic response to it. I think it's uh, very useful, and I'm very grateful to both of you for putting these points in here, and I think you're right. Um, One of the things I will say about this work is we actually, I've been part of a team of four universities, but I was leading on it, trying to secure funding to look at... Uh, families in these contexts and this was where we were introducing the concept of figures and what they represent and how people represent themselves and how they reconfigure stories of vulnerabilities as well. Um, So much of our work included actually, as most of my work does, the stories of people themselves and I think that is very
4: important. Um, to, to visual representation. So as you were saying with the figure of the child, um, you know, with the Alan Kurdi thing, that figuration of vulnerability comes to have a particular powerfully manipulative charge, um, whether it is the black woman or whether it is the child or whatever, it's tied up with a kind of iconic, which is it fits in narrative, but it also does something different in that the figuration and the visual is not only an instantiation of narrative, it also cuts across it. It creates these kind of caesuras, these points, these marks. And whether you say it's empathy or identification or the opposite horror, you know, the bestialization or whatever, there's something about the iconic and the image which produces a shift in consciousness and language and reception. And, and I, I, just, I think it's really interesting to think about what the image does
8: yeah.
4: in relation Thank to you. what you're talking about.
0: Thank you. Okay, I Gonna
10: go to the back the page. Yeah, All
0: yeah, uh, yeah, oh, right, so okay.
2: Really uh, Jean-Pierre Gauchy from the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. Um, I have a couple of questions. The first one is um, to what extent do you think that the fact that we don't have a definition of vulnerability affects the interaction with between the notion of vulnerability and uh, and people as rights holders, basically, um, and the fuzziness of the definition. To what extent do you think that that's a good thing because more people can be included, or a bad thing because it can be used to exclude um, people?
1: Sorry, just to clarify, we don't have a definition of vulnerability. Do you mean in a broad
2: in a, in a broad sense? I mean we have different defini- I, I probably we have different definitions in different places, and so UNHCR has one definition of vulnerability the EU Qualification Directive has a different definition. Um, to what extent does that kind of affect the way this interacts with people as rights holders? Sorry, it's, it's just a question you, you don't need to answer, it's just, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, uh, kind of trying to provoke a thought. And the, the other question was um, in your presentation you referred to nations instead of states. Is that a kind of conscious decision or is that just... Instead a, of
1: states, did I?
2: Yeah, or is that just... It, it, that uh, you use just them interchangeably, slipping, basically.
1: Slippy language, I Fair know. If, if, yeah, this I, is the, th- these you know, are the debates. These thing. are the discussions yeah. probably just being a bit slippy and, um, and and a bit imprecise in my terms there. Um, but the first question, um, in terms of a, of a definition, I actually think it, it, uh, these, these are opportunities um, and I think they're... There are moments like this where we come together for dialogue in, in the way that we are, which allows us to therefore not be too fixed in the ways in which in which ways in which we're defining vulnerability and making sense of it. So that's why for me it was very uh I mean, we're not going to have time now, but maybe some of you are are interested in my first question, which is about the exclusionary use of vulnerability, um, because I'm particularly interested in how this is being used to uh, do people out of resources and redirect resources away from certain groups who are viewed as too vulnerable, and I am interested in that idea as much as um, the idea of what uh, innate vulnerability might mean anyway if we came up with broader definitions, because I think it's equally... um, states, it goes back perhaps to the the question of the, the state perceiving itself as vulnerable, the state defining itself as vulnerable, the individual being configured as vulnerable within it. All of these things are important, and therefore there's a fluidity to this, which is very, very important um, for us to negotiate. What we didn't touch on here, I would have liked to have touched on a bit. I thought it might come up it hasn't, but this idea of agency and subjectivity within this as well, because what it does to be defined as vulnerable or to be conceived as vulnerable in terms of of your agency, in terms of your um, subjectivities, in terms of your identity, um, interests me greatly as well. So, um, yeah, I might just leave it there. Thank you. <laughs> have okay. I got I, any more? I, or well, I... <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still seeing indications, but I think we're yeah. going to have to wrap it up. I'm very
0: sorry. For, but I think probably the best thing is is, is if people take the opportunity to speak to uh, Kate afterwards and, and continue that discussion. There is some wine at the back, other soft drinks and... and um, refreshments. Just to remind people, as I said at the start, next week at the same time here at 5 o'clock, we have Keith Wagner, who's Assistant Professor of Global Media and Culture here at uh, UCL, and he's going to be talking about living with uncertainty, precarity, vulnerability, and service industry workers on screen. So I think, again, once again, I think there'll be some interesting parallels with this discussion and that, so please do join us for that. Please enjoy a glass of wine and say thank you to um